morning and thank you all for having me. It's always a great time to spend with my in-source family. Um, I just want to um, start off by giving some ground rules. And if you don't know, today's topic is about talking with children about race and bias. Um, but when I talk, when I have these conversations, I always like to set some ground rules um, because sometimes these topics can be um, hard for people to talk about, to listen. And I really want you to really stay engaged during this conversation. So my first ground rule, which comes from the book, Four Agreements of Courageous Conversation, is to stay engaged. And staying engaged means remaining morally, emotionally, intellectually, and socially involved in the dialogue. The second one is, is that you're going to experience discomfort. And the norm acknowledges that discomfort is inevitable, especially in dialogue about race, religion, gender, socioeconomic differences, and privilege. This agreement asks participants to make a commitment to bring into the open despite discomfort. So despite how uncomfortable you're going to feel, I want you to come into this conversation with us. It's not talking about these issues that create divisiveness. The divisiveness already exists in society, and it is through dialogue, even when uncomfortable, that the healing and the change can begin. The third one is to speak your truth. And since this is done virtually, I'm going to throughout this presentation ask you to just put in the chat some of the things that you are feeling but this means to um, be open about thoughts and feelings and not just saying what you think others want to hear from you so speak your truth and stand in your truth and the last one is very important it is expect and accept non-closure this agreement as participants to hang out in uncertainty and not rush to quick solutions. These important topics require intentional ongoing dialogue. So I wish that we could solve the world's problem all within our session today, but we cannot. Um, but so you're gonna leave here possibly with some non-closure and that's okay. And the idea is for you to continue this journey of learning um, because this is not a destination. This is definitely a journey that we are all on together. So let's talk about the elephant in the room. This past summer, the global pandemic has highlighted a lot of disparities within our country. It has highlighted the longstanding systemic health and social inequities that have put many people from racial and ethnic minority groups at increased risk of getting sick and dying from a wide range of medical conditions. This is increased, this in, there's increasing evidence that some racial and ethnic minority groups are being disproportionately affected by COVID-19 and this has taken over our lives since the beginning of the year. And then later on this in this year, we saw the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd that has sparked protests across the globe. And these topics are constantly in the media and we are bombarded with these topics all over. 
no matter where we turn, we are seeing the global pandemic and protests that have been sparked since the summer. And I remember in this summer sitting down with my daughter, having a conversation with her about race and racism. She's nine years old and I do this work. And so I'm very conscious of making sure I have conversations with her to explain what is going on in the country and what, what she is um, exposed to. But this year, because we were in quarantine, we were locked down at home, she started um, e-learning in March. I stopped working from, from my office and started working from home in March. We've been home together since March and she's more exposed to media now. And we had to have a conversation. There was no way that I could let this time pass and not explain to her what was going on because she was just experiencing it and seeing it at every turn. And so I sat down with her and I turned on the news and I said, we're going to watch the news and we're just going to talk through some of these issues. And she was like, mom, I know what's going on. We all have to stay home and quarantine because of the coronavirus. And I was like, yes, that is very true. I said, but there's something else happening in our world. And I had to sit down and I, and I talked to my daughter about race. I didn't show her the video of George Floyd, but we watched some CNN segments just of some of the aftermath and some of the the protests. And I just kind of just began to explain and to unpack some of the things that she was seeing on the television screen. And oftentimes as parents, we want to escape from having these conversations with our children because we want them to have an innocence about, we want them to have an innocence about our society. I know that was true for me. And even though I do this work and I'm a black woman and I understand the realities of what it is to be a person of color or someone from a marginalized group in this country. I wanted to save that innocence from my daughter. I, I didn't want to have to expose her to some of the ugliness of the, of the world. And so it's so easy just to say, I'm not gonna talk about it or we're just gonna ignore it. But I wanted to have these conversations with her so that she wasn't drawing her own conclusions and that I could help shape shape her perspectives and shape some of the narratives that she was she was seeing and i don't know if some of you as parents had experienced that or felt the need um, to sit down with your children this summer or if you felt frightened and just didn't know where to begin we are all on this spectrum it it is not an easy thing to talk about but i wanted to make sure that as a parent who does this work about race that i needed to have that conversation with her and so for some of us trying to escape having this conversation, it's easy to adopt the mindset of being colorblind. And this is to avoid topics about these issues, but, um, but events that is dangerous, but also events that are dangerous. But there's some danger of having this colorblind mentality. And even though it sounds courageous or it sounds very liberal, I don't see color. There are certain things that if you that you ignore when you say that you don't see color, we can't address what we do not see or choose not to see. And I just want to go through this picture. I saw this picture circulating over the summer and I shared it on Facebook and, and I thought it was very important for some people to understand how dangerous sometimes that mentality can be. So adopting that mindset, it allows you to ignore the complexity complexities of racial issues. 
It also puts you in a position that you're not actively dismantling your own prejudice because we all have them. We all do. Um, but we have to do the work of dismantling our own pre uh, prejudices. So if we say that we don't see color, we are not dismantling those prejudices. It minimizes the struggles of people of color in society. It limits your ability to appreciate individualism. And you can't fix something you cannot see. And I often use this example when people say, I don't see color. I say, well, you know, when you file a police report and they ask you to name the suspect, what are some of the things that you, you name? And some of the things that you name are, you know, race. And you identify what color um, clothes that they had on. Like you, so we see color. Um, so it's very important for us to try to shift away from that mentality so that we're not causing more, more danger and harm. So, um, you know, at what age is a proper age to start talking to your, your children about race? Um, and I saw this chart and I thought it was very enlightening because there's a lot of research out there that shows that our children as young as six months old recognize difference. So between the ages of zero and one at birth, babies look equally at faces of all races. But at three months, babies look more at faces that match the race of their caregivers. At age two, children as young as two use race to reason about people's behaviors. Between the ages, um, two and a half or at two and a half, so by 30 months, most children use race to choose playmates. Between the ages of four and five, expressions of racial prejudice often peaks at ages four and five. And this is around the preschool age that we're starting to send our children to preschool and to kindergarten. At age five, Black and Latinx children in research settings show no preference towards their own groups as compared to white children at, the, at this age, who are more likely to be strongly biased in favor of whiteness. Also at this age, by kindergarten, children show many of the same racial attitudes held by adults in our culture. They have already learned to associate some groups with higher status than others. So some of this shaping has to do with the people that are around our children and some of our perspectives that we share about race. We are shaping our children at a very young age. Between the ages five and seven, explicit conversations with five to seven-year-olds about interracial friendships can dramatically improve their racial attitudes in as little as a single week. In a single week, you can see improvements. Um, so it's very important for us to start early having these conversations with our children. Also, I'm gonna show you a video uh, about a 10 minute segment of Anderson Cooper's kids and race in america and it kind of digs into bias if some of you are familiar um with the doll test that was done in the late 40s the early 50s it was very influential in the 19 um 
54 Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court um, case. Um, so some psychologists, this, this is a little dated because it has President Obama and his family talking about his presidency, but they did this dog test again a couple of years ago. So we're gonna watch about 10 minutes of it um, just so you can understand where bias comes from. So give me one second to pull this up. I'm still with you, just give me one second. If you are um, on the screen, in the chat, just let us know if you have already had conversations with your children about race, or if it's something that you are hesitant to have a conversation about, just list it in the chat. Just say, yes, I have, no, I haven't. I'm a little fearful, or we've conquered this talk. Let me see in the chat. Okay, I see some people said yes, they have. Good for you, Chris. Kelsey says, I have not, but I am nervous. Okay, I understand that, Kelsey. And we're here to help and to give you some tips. Okay, I got my video up now. Okay, now, if you can let me know in the chat, if you can hear, I want to make sure the sound is good. Are you all able to hear? No sound on my end, okay. No sound, okay. Give me one second. Can you hear the sound? No, Regina, we're still no not sound. Anything. Okay. So this is what I'm going to do. I am going to, um, Kathy, can I send you this link? And then for the participants on the call, you can watch it later. Uh, yeah, we can, we can email that, um, email that link out to folks. Okay, perfect. I'm so sorry. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why the sound isn't working. It was working. Well, it may it may be on our end. I'm I'm not sure. Um, but I don't know if it is or how to fix it. If that were the case, so sorry about that. 
No, no problem. So we'll we'll get this link out to you all and I'll just briefly explain explain what you would have saw in the video. Let me pull my PowerPoint back up. So in the video, when you watch it later, you will see, you will see that they redid the doll test. And the doll test basically consists of pulling children together. They use two groups. They pull children from the ages um, four and five together, and then children around the age 10. They pull them in and individually showed them um, show them pictures of little characters with different shades of color that represents the different shades that we see across the country and ask them to point out the bad children and ask them to point out children who looked like a good a good child and then a child point to a child that teachers want to be friends with or be nice to or want to help um what we saw in the video um, as evidence is that a lot of the white children pointed to their own skin tone as um, children who were good and they pointed to darker skin tone as children that were bad. You will also see in the video um, some black children pointing at their own skin color as being bad or as someone that teachers don't want to help. And you will see them associate the lighter skin um, characters with being good or someone who's nice. You also had um, some children who preferred to answer the question by pointing to all of them saying that they were all good and that they wanted to be friends with all of the students and that it didn't matter um, what color they were, that they wanted to be friends or hang out or the teachers were nice to those students. So you saw different children on the on the spectrum when it came to this. So I have my dog up under my feet. My dog, he's he's five years old. He's been my lap dog since I've been home. So you may hear him every once in a while. Um, but what was very interesting, what is um, hard about the video is to see the, the children as innocent as they are giving you their their innocent answers um pointing to different skin tones that they associated with good or bad um even seeing some of the black children point to the dark skin tone associating that with bad which means that they associate kind of associates themselves that way and so i show that video to show how implicit bias works and so it looks like i'm sharing the wrong screen with you all And so what we have to understand about implicit bias is that it causes feelings and attitudes about other people based on their characteristics such as race, ethnicity, age, gender, and experience. This develops over a lifetime um, and begins at the early stage at six months old. 
and child psychologists and child development scholars have made it clear in their research that children as young as six months old recognize difference. They can, they can notice hair texture or skin tone by the age of six months, but they lack the cognitive resources or ability to make sense of those differences and attach meaning to them. This is what's very interesting. This is where the, the meaning comes from. The meaning, the meaning is attached through media, through messages from families and schools and so on. So little happens in K through 12 schools to awaken our consciousness and to disrupt the ways in which those four and five year olds you just watched what would have seen in the video um, disrupt the way that they've been socialized or think about the racial others. And to be honest, I have spent 14 years, a little over 14 years in higher education. And even when they get to higher ed and when they get to college, you find more and more students who have come without having these conversations about race. So there was little to do in the K through 12 system to disrupt it and sometimes little to do in higher ed to disrupt some of the socialization that has been happening with with our children. So it's very important that we have these conversations and we help guide these conversations and we help shape them so that when our children grow up, they are um, respectable citizens in our country. So the definition of implicit bias comes out of the Kirwan Institute of Ohio State University. And it is the attitudes or stereotypes that affects our understanding actions and decisions in an unconscious manner. That's very important. It happens sometimes unconsciously. These biases are activated involuntarily and without an individual's awareness or intentional control. So have you ever walked into a room and sized somebody up? Let's be honest. Sometimes we do it. You walk into a room, maybe it's a social event, um, and someone walks in and you walk in and you have these quick thoughts about people of who you perceive that they are or, who, or, um, their, or their background. Um, this is how implicit bias work. It is those quick thoughts um, that we have that sometimes are associated with stereotypes. They can be negative. Sometimes they can be positive, but um, there's these quick thoughts that, that we have. Here's some things to understand about implicit bias. They're pervasive and everyone possesses them. We are all guilty of implicit bias. The implicit association we hold do not necessarily align with our declared beliefs. So sometimes you can have that quick thought that comes out of your, un your unconsciousness and you're thinking, wow, where did that come from? Like that does not match up with my belief system. Um, I can't believe I just had that thought. Um, it's very important in those moments to do some correcting um, when those pop up and you recognize that you have just um, you have just been biased towards someone. The next thing is we generally tend to hold implicit bias that favors our in-group. The research has shown that we can still hold implicit bias against our own in-group. So as I was explaining in the video, as you will see, you will see some of the some of the black kids pointing to the darkest skin characters on the the chart showing or saying that they were associated with being bad or teachers not wanting to help them but i don't come bearing bad news um implicit bias that we form can be unlearned so that is the good news 
learn these behaviors. We have to do the work at unlearning these behaviors. And the first step is to interrupting those thoughts that we have, those quick thoughts that come up from our unconscious that don't align with our declared beliefs. Or if, if they are some of your beliefs, you may need to change some of your beliefs uh, that, that could be swayed um, negatively, but you have to interrupt those thoughts right then and air, there to correct those behaviors. I wanna introduce a topic called microaggressions because I want to kind of walk you through how um, implicit bias can work. So implicit bias usually happens in an unconscious manner. It affects our attitudes and, and some of our stereotypes that we have. Um, cognitively. Microaggressions are the expression of those implicit bias. So microaggressions, the definitions of that are the everyday verbal, nonverbal, and, and environmental slights, snubs, or insults, whether intentional or intentional, which communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative messages to target persons based solely upon their marginalized group membership. So this is where you move from the implicit bias being at the thinking stage based on stereotypes into action. And these can have a negative effect. And so it's very important that we talk to our children because these microaggressions can lead to children feeling bullied um, in school. Um, it also leads to children um, committing suicide. So it's very important to talk to our children, not only about some of the things that they think about, but some of the things that they do and some of the things that they say. So some of the impacts of microaggressions, it invalidates the group identity or experiential reality of targeted persons. It makes them feel as if that they don't belong. It communicates that they are lesser. It suggests um, that they don't belong. They feel threatened. Some students feel threatened or intimidated or it regulates them to inferior status and treatment. So these are some of the impacts of experiencing microaggressions. I have another video, but since the sound isn't working, um, I'll send this out to Kathy and she can send it all to you all. Um, it's just a brief conversation between two people gone wrong about how microaggressions play out. Um, some of you probably have experienced these. Um, there's an internal process that, you know, you go through, and even sometimes your, your kids, because they don't quite understand, you know, what is happening to them. So there's an internal process or a dilemma that takes place. And there are some questions that they may begin to ask themselves as, did I interpret that correctly? Or um, what did they mean by that? Should I say something? Or if I say something, they're probably gonna think I'm overreacting. Um, so it's very important to have these conversations with your children so that if they're experienced these things, you can talk them through this internal process that they're having um, to, to let them know that there's nothing wrong with them and that what they experienced was their experience. So to validate some of the experiences that they may be encountering um, in school. I know every day I talk to my daughter when, when we weren't virtual, when she was going to school, I'd pick her up and I always asked her about her day and I asked her were people nice to her. And we talked about that experience. And then I, I always follow up, well, you know, was there anyone who was mean to you today? Like, tell me about that. So I could walk her through processing her feelings about what she was experiencing to, to validate her experience. So it's important to have conversations because you never know what your children are dealing with internally. 
And so it's important to keep, to keep those lines of communication open so that they feel as if you are a safe place to talk about these issues. Also, uh, if, if your kids experience this, not even just your kids, you, you experience these on a daily basis, um, it can produce anxiety and depression in your life. You can have a hard time sleeping at night. Um, it can diminish your, your confidence. You'll feel helpless, helpless or you'll, you'll lose your sense of drive. Um, and I always try to recognize these signs, um, even with my children, even when I ask you know, my daughter about her day, if for any reason, thank you, I see someone put something in the chat that I'm gonna mention in a minute, but I, we talk about these issues or if she feels if mommy, I don't wanna go to school today. And I ask her, you know, you know, that's a changed behavior for her. Why don't you wanna go to school? And so, you know, I, I try to ask these, these probing questions that's not alarming to her so we can get to the root of the issue so I can see, you know, is something happening in the classroom? Is something happening um, between you and the teacher? Is something happening on the playground so that I can step in and be that support for her? So it's very important to talk to your children if you notice some changed behavior that, um, that they are ex exhibiting. Some examples of microaggressions um, for those of you who have teenagers or preteens, um, you, um, you may have conversations with them about these issues. Um, I know for me, one of the things that I heard growing up was, um, you talk white. And that just always mind boggled me. Like, what does it mean to talk white? And a lot of times that is associated with, you know, you're speaking proper English and so you're, you're trying to sound white. So the message there is that only white people speak standard English, which is not true. Um, so, you know, you can hear that from, from either side or, you know, for, for some people it's, you're so articulate, you know, as if, you know, you can't sound intelligent. Another one is, is when I look at you, I don't see color. And we talked about that colorblind mentality in the beginning and how um, the message there is denying a person's of color or racial ethnicity their experiences. Um, another one that you may hear is, I'm not racist. I have several black friends or my, my cousin has you know, mixed children. So this sends a message as if they're immune to racism because they have um, friends of color or, or uh, family members who are of color. Another one is diminishing an individual who brings up race or culture in work or in the school setting. So just always being dismissive. Um, that sends a language or, or message of, you know, leave your cultural baggage outside. Like, we don't have those issues here. You're always, you know, you're always singing that tune. We don't see those issues. That can leave a, a negative message too. Um, another one is, you know, you speak so loud or animated or just calm down or for some cultures, you know, they're, they really don't speak up. And so they're, you're sending the message that you need to assimilate to the dominant culture. Um, this one here in particular happened to me, actually, <laughs> um, mistaking a person of color for a service worker that sends a message that only people of color um, are servants to white individuals. And so it's, these are just a few, very few examples of microaggressions. There's so many more. I didn't want to bombard you with them all. But these are just few examples of microaggressions that we want to be mindful of, that we take them out of our language. Um, and that we help our, 
our children process some of these experiences that they they may be having i also want to talk to you so so that we we move from talking about implicit bias how you know babies as young as six months old recognize difference but they lack the cognitive ability to to understand but then as they get older they begin to be to be socialized and receive messages through school through the media on on youtube um disney channel um, within our families just being around here in conversations we begin to mold them um, and then they begin to hold some bias towards certain groups so starting at a young age they develop this bias and then once it gets out of their thinking stage it can go into actions into microaggressions and over this past summer um, there has been a lot of talk about the word anti-racism um, it for some reason it has come to the top of conversations lately um, there is an author named Ibram Kendi. He wrote a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist. I'm sorry, let me get my dog. While Regina's away, I would like to remind you that you can post your questions in either the question and answer box, or you can even post them in the chat box. Please feel free to do this and we will address your questions towards the end of the um, presentation today. Thank you. Thank you so much for that commercial break as I got rid of my dog because he was barking at a bird that he saw out the window. Um, but there's this term that has come up called anti-racism and uh, this book, How to Be an Anti-Racist is um, very popular now. And so you'll hear a lot of people talk about wanting to be anti-racist and what does that mean and how do we raise children to be anti-racist? He also has a book um, titled The Anti-Racist Baby. Um, so in his book, he talks about anti-racism and he defines it as the active process of identifying and eliminating racism. So it is an active process. You have to make sure about that. It's, it's not something that you can just say, oh, I'm anti-racist. You have to actively um, identify and eliminate racism, not only racism, but some of the stereotypes and the biases that we, we may hold. Also in his book, he says, when we choose to be anti-racist, we become actively conscious about race and racism and take action to end racial inequity in our daily lives. He also says being anti-racist is believing that racism is everyone's problem and we all have a role to play in stopping it. And I think that's very important um, because a lot of times, um, and I've been hearing, hearing this a lot um, since the summer with the protests, been hearing you know, from some people, you know, it's everybody's job to end racism. And then there are some people groups that are saying, you know, um, it's not our issue. We shouldn't have to be forced to, to end it. You know, so there's a lot of back and forth. It's everyone's job to recognize it, to call it out, and to stop it, especially in our, our personal lives as we are raising our children and our sphere of influence. You want to, to truly be anti-racist. You have to make sure that it is everyone's responsibility. In his book, he says, you know, he addresses his white audience and he says for them being anti-racist evolves with their racial identity development 
They must acknowledge and understand their privilege, work to change their internalized racism, and interrupt racism when they see it. Um, and this is the active part that he's talking about, the active process, is to understand privilege. There's a lot of conversation about, you know, is, priv is privilege a, a real thing? Um, it is a real thing. Is there a such thing as white privilege? I would say that there is a such thing as white privilege. And even though you may be white and you may feel as if, you know, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Nothing was handed to me. I had to work, you know, to get to where I am today. There are still some rooms that you have access to, some resources that you have access to, just simply based on your, your skin color. Um, me, as a Black woman, I operate in privilege. Um, and my privilege, I attribute it through my education. Um, because of my education, now I have access and resources to different things that as a child growing up as a low-income person, I did not have access to. So I'm even using my privilege as a black woman to help others because of the resources and the knowledges that knowledge that I have. So I'm understanding my own privilege as a black woman and, and helping others um, and using my privilege to help others. Um, so recognizing that privilege, understanding that, and then working to change the internalized racism um, and for some people that process is hard. And I have a lot of white friends and we have these conversations and you know, a lot of them say, you know, I didn't grow up talking about race. You know, we didn't talk about these issues in my family. Like it was something that we just did not bring home. We didn't, we didn't talk about. And so they had they had the opportunity not to talk about some of the internalized, you know, racism things that they were experiencing or seeing. They never had to address it. Um, so now for them, a lot of them are unpacking it. And then to interrupt racism when, when you see it, um, even talking to my friends now, you know, the holiday season is coming up and everything has been so politicized. And I have so my friends who are just like, you know, I'm dreading going home for Thanksgiving or to have a Thanksgiving dinner because I know these topics are going to come up. And so some of them feel empowered to speak up and others feel a little timid and, and shy about speaking up and they, they won't say anything. Um, but if you want to be anti-racist, you have to know that it is an active process. You have to be active. It's a verb. He also addresses people of color in, in his book. And he says being anti-racist means recognize, recognizing how race and racism have been internalized and whether it has been applied to other people groups. He also says you have to act by interrupting patterns of prejudice against other racial groups. Um, Dr. Cornell West has a quote where he says, I grew up in America, white supremacy lives in me and every day I'm dying to it. And he's speaking to that active process of dismantling that internalized racism that he has against his own self um, that has been socialized within him. And, you know, when I first heard that quote, my eyes just, it, I feel like my eyes was enlightened and I began to address um, the, the white supremacy or the racism against my own skin color that was internalized within me. And I began to, to, um, evaluate how I was 
um, showing up in different spaces, how I was interacting with different people, how I was changing my, my voice or my vernacular to try to fit in and said, you know, that's a lot of work. <laughs> that is a lot of work to try to make other people feel comfortable. And so I started to dismantle that within myself. And as I was dismantling those 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 things that, or those behaviors that I had, the more freer I became and the more free I became in telling people, this is who I am. Um, and I'm not going to, to change that to make others feel, feel comfortable. So it's that active process of dismantling it within yourself. But he says for everyone, it's an ongoing practice and process. And sometimes we may not get it right. Sometimes we feel like we have to start all over um, because we made a mistake or we just didn't interrupt some of those patterns or we didn't speak up when we should have. Um, it's an ongoing process. So don't beat yourself up just as long as you're continuing to do the work and you're, you're moving forward. I stated earlier that he has a book um, called Anti The Anti-Racist Baby that just came out this summer because his other book um, really shot to the top of the New York bestseller. So he has these two books out. You can, you can read them if you choose to. I know How to Be an Anti-Racist is on audio. So if, if you like to listen to books, you can um, listen to that audibly. Um, and then the anti-racist book is for babies. I think it's like a 25-page picture book if you have younger children or grandchildren that you want to introduce these, these topics to. Um, I forgot to put the slide in here when we were talking about implicit bias and someone put it in the chat. There, you can go to Project Implicit through Harvard University. They have free tests that you can take to check your own bias for different topics or different, um, different biases that you may have. I do the work every six months. I take the test just to see uh, if I'm doing the work, if I'm progressing. Um, and dismantling the biases that I have. So um, it's a free test. You can go on there. It's listed in the chat. I saw someone put the link in the chat. Feel free to go there whenever you have some time to, um, to take the test. And you can take as many as you want. There's a whole list of tests that you can do. I also want to talk to you about this idea of um, ally or allyship and what does it mean to be an ally? Um, and how, how can you raise your children to be allies in, in the fight for, for racial justice? Um, so an ally is someone from a non-marginalized group who uses their privilege to advocate for a marginalized group. They transfer the benefits of their privilege to those who lack it. And so there's, there's you have to understand that there's a difference between being an ally and then performative allyship. Performative allyship kind of looks like um, just posting something on social media, um, not actively doing anything to dismantle or to call out race or racism when you see it. Um, so that's kind of performative. You know, this summer, a lot of people did a lot of performative things. There were some businesses and organizations. I'm sure your inbox was full from different companies making diversity statements. Um, to me, that was performative allyship when you looked at their executive board and you didn't see um, people of color represented. So they claimed that they had, you know, they had this attitude towards diversity, but 
it didn't show in their infrastructure. So that's kind of performative allyship. We don't want you to, to operate in that space. We really want you to be an ally and to really call out or to stand with those who are marginalized. So being an ally is committing to the following, to action, to listening, to learning, and to yielding. So for action, allyship is constant and committed practice. It's not an identity. It is a constant and committed practice. Allyship involves action, support, and solidarity with marginalized group and anti-oppression, anti-racist movements and moments. So that is being an ally, you are active. You are actively practicing being an ally. The second one here is listening. So allies respectfully listen to marginalized people and groups. They work to build mutual trust and consent through actions, listening, learning, and yielding. So as we're having conversations with our children, we're, we're wanting them to, um, to be allies or to be anti-racist. It's very important that we, we express to them that these are actionable things and then there's a process where you have to yield and you have to listen to other people experiences the next one is learning and allies do the research and work of learning about privilege and positionality and historical and contemporary struggles they work to reveal and challenge assumptions long-held narratives and build an understanding of the systems and structures of oppression so that they they may work to confront and eradicate it. So there's a learning process when it comes to being an ally. You have to take time to learn about some of the, the struggles or the historical um, struggles that have existed in our world in order to address some of these issues. And the last one here is yielding. So allyship involves both action and yielding in the sense that practicing allyship means that they are careful to avoid monopolizing overtaking, speaking for, patronizing, romanticizing, or agenda setting. Allies act, listen, learn, and yield. So there will be times where you can't be the leader, that you'll, you'll need to take your cues and your lead from people of color or from those who are marginalized um, and who, who need to um, take up this charge. So being an ally is important to know that it is actionable. And so how can you how can you train not only yourself but your your children to be allies? And that is through the active process of action, listening, learning, and yielding. So here are some tips that I want to share with you for talking um, with your children about race, for teaching them about, about these issues. Um, the first one is to start early. As we showed or talked about earlier, by six months of age, babies are noticing racial difference. And by the age four, children have begun to show signs of racial bias. So start early and you don't have to unload on your children. Um, don't, don't try to unpack everything on them at such a young age. You know, there are age appropriate books that you can go to the library and get or to buy from your local bookstore that can help you introduce these topics to your children to have these conversations. 
Um, the other thing that you can do is let your child know that it's perfectly okay to notice skin color and to talk about race. So to start talking about the racial differences, um, what they mean and what they don't mean. So it's, it's okay to have these conversations, even if you grew up in a household where you didn't talk about these, these issues. Um, it's okay to talk about these issues and make your children comfortable to, to talk about it. Um, the second thing is to encourage your children. Um, encourage them to ask questions, to share observations and experiences, and be respectfully curious about race. Um, I do this with my daughter all the time, and she noticed sometimes she's, she's at a point now where she notices things before I do, and, and she points them out, especially when she's watching TV or something on the Disney Channel. She'll point out some of the, the nuances to me. Um, another thing is to expose your children to different cultural opportunities. So expose them to um, films and books and cultural events, for example, and discuss the experience afterward. Talk about what they learned and how that experience impacted them. Um, and the next thing is you don't have to be an expert on race to talk with your child. Um, be honest about what um, be honest about what you don't know and work with your child to find accurate information. Um, so don't go in thinking, well, I need to read X amount of books before I can have a conversation with my child. You do not have to be an expert to begin the conversation. If there's something you don't know, just say, you know, let's research that together and let's, let's find that out. The third one here is to be mindful. And what kids hear from us is less important than what they see us do. So you are a role model for your child and for your grandchildren. And what you say is so important, but what you do is very important. The diversity of your friendships, your friend circles, for example, is likely to have a bigger impact on, on your family. So they are watching you, they are listening to you, you are their biggest role model, so you want to model this for them in your everyday life. Um, if your child doesn't attend a diverse school, consider enrolling them in extracurricular or weekend activities such as sports leagues that are diverse if you're able to. And then choose books and toys that include persons of different races and ethnicities or visit museums with exhibits about a range that exhibits a, a wide range of cultures and religions. Number four, um, face and know your own, your own bias. Um, let your children see you acknowledge and face your own, own bias. We're less likely to pass on the biases we identify and work to, to, and work to overcome. Um, so face your own and then give your child an example of a bias, um, racial or otherwise, that you hold or have held and share with your child things that you've done to confront and to overcome your own bias. So it's very important for them to see you do the work. Number, number five, know and love who you are. So talk about the, the histories and experiences of racial and ethnic and cultural groups um, within your family, within yourself and within your family. Talk about it. Um, talk about their contributions and acknowledge the less flattering parts of those histories as, as well. Um, my daughter and I, we talk about, you know, our culture and where we come from. We talk about it all the time. Um, also talk to her about what she's learning at school too, so that I can help shape, you know, some of the knowledge that she is learning from school and helping to add to that. So tell stories about the challenges of your families, about your, 
your parents, your aunts, your uncles, your grandparents, your great grandparents, um, and others have faced um, within our country. We all have a rich history um, in this country, and so it's very important to talk about what those what those histories are. Um, number six, develop racial cultural literacy. So develop um, this literacy by learning and learning about and respecting others. So study and talk about the histories and experiences of groups that you don't identify with, whether it's um, white, African-American, Latinx, Asian-American, Native Americans. Learn about these histories and talk about them. And be sure your child understands that every racial group or ethnic group includes people who believe different things and behave in different ways. Um, there is so much diversity within racial groups um, as we come across them. So it's important to have those conversations and to highlight that. Number seven, be honest with your child in the age appropriate, in the age appropriate way. So have these conversations. Um, children are amazing at noticing patterns, including racial patterns, like who lives in our neighborhoods versus our friends' neighborhoods, for example. So help them make sense of those patterns and recognize um, the differences that they see and, you know, explain to them, you know, some of the big parts of those questions or their differences that she's, that they're recognizing. And be sure that your, your child knows that the struggle for racial fairness is still happening and that your family can take part in that struggle. Um, with me sitting down with my daughter this summer, a part of me sitting down um, and showing her the protest on CNN was preparing her for a local protest that we were going to in our city. So we sat down and I explained to her what was happening and what was going on. We made signs together, we got t-shirts made, and we went to the protest. And so I did that so that she could um, understand, you know, how we were taking part in the struggle together. Number eight, tell stories. So lift up the freedom fighters. Tell stories of resistance and resilience um, in your family and your culture and in, in our country. Every big story of racial oppression is also a story about people fighting back and speaking truth to power. So teach your children about those parts of the story. And which is one of the reasons why when my daughter come home from school, I ask her about what she's learning in like science and social studies so that I can highlight, you know, some of the narratives that have been silenced historically within our country. So I can show her the other sides of those stories. Um, include women, children, and young adults among the freedom fighters in the stories that you tell. Um, it's so easy when people talk about um, the civil rights movement to always go to Dr. Martin Luther King or to Rosa Parks. But there are several uh, women, children, young adults, young people who were leading the charge. And so it's important to share those stories um, so that they can see that here, that there can be ch children, women of all ages can be heroes too. Number nine, be active. Um, and this is where allyship comes in to, you know, be active and don't be a bystander on race. Help your ch children understand what it means to be and how to be a change agent. Um, and whenever possible, connect the conversations you're having to the change you and your child want to see and to the ways to bring about the change. 
Um, don't just be a bystander. And I know for some of you, you may not like confrontation. So it's easy for me to say, you know, don't be a bystander because I'm not afraid to, to speak up when I see any type of injustice. Um, but for some of you, it may be uncomfortable because you may not like confrontation. Um, but find a way for you to, to speak up. Um, find a way for you to to be active and not a bystander. And if it's something that you, you've experienced where you can send an email later to, to someone, that is a way of you being active and not being a bystander. Um, so find a way that is comfortable for you to, to be active or uncomfortable to, to push yourself um, so that you can grow in that area. And then lastly, um, I stated earlier that we're all on a journey together. This isn't a destination. So plan for a marathon and not a sprint. And it is okay to say, I'm not sure, or let's come back to that later um, when talking to your children about race. And then do come back to it so that you can continue in that learning. And lastly, um, I just want to say here, make race talks with your child routine. Um, don't let it just be um, every once in a while, every blue moon or around. Currently, right now, we're in Hispanic Heritage Month. Um, and then in February, it's going to be Black History Month. I think May is Asian Pacific Islander History Month. Don't wait to those months to talk about these conversations. Um, make this routine uh, a routine conversation. And race is a topic you can plan to revisit again and again in many different ways. Make sure that this is a, a constant conversation um, that you're having with your children. I, that is the end of my presentation. I wanna apologize that the sound wasn't working so we couldn't watch the two videos and then apologize for my dog barking, but hey, that's the, the upside of working from home, working virtually. Um, but Kathy, if you want to, um, skim the chat to see if there were any particular questions that our participants wanted answered. I'm not seeing questions per se, but one of the first comments was by a gentleman who's a sociology major and he commented that colorblind racism is very real and something many have, which I, I think um, we were pretty in, encouraged about. Um, and looking at grandchildren as I am myself. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I like that book that you showed. Um, looks like that could be an interesting, an interesting one to kind of initiate some of these discussions. But as I scroll through um, Uh, some Cheyenne had mentioned, um, I always ask what was the best part of your day and what was not great in talking to, to, um, to, to, the, to the, her child. And uh, that, was, that was great. Um, you kind of referenced that with your, your own children as well. Mm -hmm. uh, she also posted implicit, uh, that implicit bias. Um, the link, yes, thank you, Cheyenne. And, I and saw I it was did. posted. Yeah, and I reposted it. Somebody I think was looking for it. I think that was the link they were looking for and I did repost it. Um, and so hopefully scroll back up folks. If you, if you missed it, you can, you can see it. Um, 
And Sarah asks, can you share the book again that was referenced earlier? Oh, and that Kathy referred to as well. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, there it is on the yeah. screen. The anti-racist baby. Yes, that, because that's not just for babies. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, that. And I, I think I see here Nakia posted, oh, did I lose the comment? Oh, we had to be color brave to help combat uh, racism. And that was, that phrase color brave was a charge from um, Dr. Martin Luther King in one of his speeches talking about being color brave. And then there is also a TED talk. I love TED talks. I'm such a nerd. Um, by Melanie Hobson, where she talks about being color brave. Um, so if you want um, more information on what is, what it means to be color brave, you can watch her, her TED talk what it means to be color brave. And that is um, the counter of being colorblind, is being brave and seeing color and seeing the, the beauty that comes with our differences that we all possess. Mm -hmm. Someone also asked to re for me to repost that link and I did. Um, so uh, for the gal that just asked, please find it there. And there is a question, are there other books you would recommend for children? We talk about race, but not sure my child would be able to identify her biases. Yeah, okay. Um, I cannot think of them off the top of my head, but I do have a list of resources. So as I send over um, the video links, I will also send a link to an article that lists tons of books, children's books. Okay. Um, for you to purchase for your children. I can't think of any off the top of my head. Okay. And no. you know, some of these, some of these books don't, doesn't have to be like specific to, um, to race or things. So one book that I use with my daughter because um, my daughter, let me stop sharing the screen so you can see my face. My daughter has um, really curly hair. Um, she has really curly hair. And for a while, she did not like her hair, her hair texture. And she has a beautiful grade of hair. And I'm like, listen, honey, people are paying thousands of dollars to get hair like this. Like, you you are so blessed. And so we, I, bought, I purchased a book called um, I Love My Hair. And um, in the book, this young girl, she's a young Black girl, but it shows the different hairstyles that she can have. And so I, for years went through that book with my daughter and showed her different pictures. Like, look, you've had this hairstyle before and you've had this hairstyle before. So just, I was educating my daughter on, you know, her hair and, and the beauty of her hair. Now she loves it and she totally embraces it. And another thing that attributed to that was the, the movie Annie, because Annie in the movie um, with Jamie Foxx, and I don't know the young girl's name, but it was, um, Annie was black. She had curly, like big hair Afro too. And I'm like, look, you guys have the same hair. And so since then she, she's loved her hair, but you know, everything doesn't have to be like a race specific book. Um, there are books out there that could highlight the differences of others um, within some of the books. So you can spend time reading, reading those books with your children too. Great. Great. Okay, well, we'll look forward to those links. Hopefully, hopefully we can get those out to you tomorrow. I'm not promising, but uh, that link to the site for the books also would be would be great. Yep, I'll send that. Okay, um, Jill, I'm not seeing anything in Facebook on Facebook Live. Um, I'm not seeing any other questions here in the chat box. Um, no, I don't have any that's been posted on our Facebook Live at all. 